All right, guys, I came up with a great invention that if I had magic powers and I could make this and invent this, I would be rich, okay? Um, but I don't have magic powers. But I, I still came up with a great invention that if I had magic powers and I could make it, 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 I would make a lot of money. And so here's the invention. It's not a dating app, but you have a dating app, okay? Like, and so for those in the room that don't really use technology, a dating app is this thing you go to and you get dates virtually. It's like, I don't know. I, I haven't, I don't know. I'm one of these old people that never used it. So I don't know how it works. But it's a dating app. But this dating app, what's unique about this dating app is you, when you're looking at other people's profiles, when you click on their profile, you can actually hear the prayers that that person prays. Okay, so this is, the, this is the idea, that you'd be able, okay, okay, let's look at Tad's profile, okay? You click on Tad's profile, and you get to hear the prayers that he prays. I think this would be amazing because I think this would be a great way to actually get to know someone. Like if you could hear their prayers, it would be a great way to get to know someone. So you go, ladies, you go to Tad's profile, you click on it, and you find out, Tad, he's always praying that God would give him a hot wife. Always praying that. What you know, ladies, is you could kick him to the curb right then, right? Because he doesn't know how aging works and that we're all going to be ugly one day, right? And so you go, Tad is a no. Tad needs to be praying for a godly wife, not a hot wife, okay? Tad is immature. You move on. So I think that I would make a lot of money, especially amongst Christians, if I could invent an app where you could hear somebody's prayers because I think that if you hear someone's prayers and listen to someone's prayers, you can actually really get to know them pretty well. And so I'm still trying to figure out the technology on that, but I can't quite figure it out. I would even wager this. I would even say this. If you want to get to know yourself better, I think one of the ways you could do that is for a week, just chronicle or journal all of the pray prayers that you pray for a week. Like write down every time you say something to God, every time you ask him for something, write those down for a week, and then at the end of the week, look at those prayers. Here's the problem. If you start to do this exercise, you're going to start doing all these amazing, awesome prayers. But if you could look at your prayers in a genuine and a sincere way and see what you pray over a week, I think you'd begin to go, oh, this is what I think about a lot. This is what I care about a lot. This is what matters to me most. I, I really would wager that if you could see your prayers and see what you're praying for, those prayers would show what you care about most, what you think about a lot. Now, the reason I bring all that up is because today we're back in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 17, which is famously a prayer of Jesus. So, so where we've been in John before Advent, what we saw in John was Jesus was preparing his disciples for him being away. He was preparing them for him being away because he was going to die on the cross and be dead for three days before he resurrected. But he was also preparing them for the ascension. Like he, was go he knew that he was going to go be with his father and God's people were going to carry out the mission of God together. And so Jesus was preparing them. And, and what we saw, the ways that Jesus pre was preparing them was he was saying, hey, love needs to be at the center of what you do. You, as God's people, need to be loving each other and loving the world. And he, Jesus said he's going to give us his spirit. He's going to give his people, the disciples in particular, 
his spirit, he was saying. Not that they have it more than us, but that's what he was saying in John, is what I mean when I say in particular. And so he said the ways that he's going to prepare the disciples is by centering their lives around love and giving his spirit. And so now what we see in John 17 is Jesus is closer to the cross. He's closer to getting arrested. And he knows it. And so he prays this prayer that sometimes we call the high priestly prayer. He prays this prayer. And I think that this prayer of Jesus helps us to get to know Jesus. It helps us to get to see what Jesus thinks about, what Jesus cares about, what matters to Jesus. And I also think that the prayer was something Jesus prayed in order to form his disciples, to turn them into more mature disciples, because I think he was doing this prayer in front of them, and I think they heard it, and it helped them to know what mattered most to Jesus in order to form them to see what mattered most to them. There was an Anglican priest in the first half of the 20th century, William Temple, and what he said about John 17 was this. Is he said he believed this passage to be perhaps the most sacred passage, even in the four Gospels. And the reason he thought that is because we get this glimpse into what Jesus prayed. All through the Gospels, we see that Jesus goes away and prays, but there is no other passage in the Gospels like this where we get to see for a long amount of time, for a whole chapter, what Jesus prays. And so I I think through this prayer, what we're going to see is we're going to be able to grow in intimacy with Jesus. We're going to be able to see things about him that maybe we haven't seen. And then I think in this prayer, we'll be able to grow in maturity as disciples as we look at this prayer. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks, including today, in John 17, looking at this prayer of Jesus. Okay, so today, next week, and the week after, we're going to break this prayer up and look at different parts. And so today, we're going to go through just the first five verses together of John 17 and look at the first five verses of this prayer that will help us to get to know Jesus. And then after we go through the five verses together, I'm going to pull three observations from the prayer. Three observations for us, things that I just want us to look at in this prayer. And then with each observation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose or I'm going to ask a challenging question for us. And each observation will go with a challenging question. And that challenging question is designed to form us and make us more mature disciples. It's designed to help us become, walk into maturity in our walk with God, okay? So three observations and three challenging questions with each of those observations. So with all of that being said, let's hop into the text. We're in John chapter 17. We're going to be in verse 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's kind of two parts to the Bible. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Gospel of John is right near the beginning of the New Testament. It's the fourth book. So... That's where we'll be. Follow along with me. It will be on the screen. You can just read in your heads as I read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I'm actually, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read these five verses again because this is where we're at today. I want it to soak into us, okay? So let's do this again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is headed to the cross. He knows he's about to be arrested. He begins to pray this prayer that I think shows his heart, shows what he cares about, shows what he thinks about, and this prayer forms the disciples. And before I I get into kind of some of my observations here, one one quick note. If if you get hung up on the Trinity, the, the idea that there's one God and He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons of Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God. If if, if that's a hang-up for you and that's hard for you, I would just just ask you today, don't get hung up on it. Just kind of ignore it. Because all through this high priestly prayer, as we go through this prayer in John 17, if you keep thinking about this and and you get hung up on the Trinity stuff, you're going to miss the point. You're going to miss the things that Jesus is praying about. You're going to miss what matters in this prayer. And so try your best to not get hung up on those things. Although for me, it's, it, it, it's something that can confuse me and it gets me hung up sometimes. And so that's part of why I say that to you guys too. So don't get hung up on the Trinity. If you need some uh, books or things or papers on the Trinity to help you understand more, let me know. I'd love to help you with that. Um, But here's my first observation. Here's my first observation from this prayer. The first thing that I notice in this prayer is this. A goal and a characteristic of Jesus' life is giving God glory. A goal and a characteristic of Jesus' life is to give God glory. Okay? So let's talk about glory for a little bit. Glory in the Bible, in Hebrew, that word glory it, it means all kinds of things, but its literal meaning is weightiness, heaviness. If something had glory in the Bible, you could say, like, that stone over there has glory. That stone is heavy. That stone is glorious, and you would mean it's heavy. And so glory in the Bible means weightiness, heaviness. But glory in the Bible is kind of used in, in a variety of different ways. Glory in the Bible is this noun, and then it's also this verb, and when we see it to mean glorify, right? And so as a noun, glory in the Bible, it's basically a characteristic of someone a characteristic of someone that often is seen outside of that person. That, that there are things outside of that person in a sense that point to this person as being glorious and greater than, than average because of these things outside of that person that point to it. So in the Bible, like if a king had riches and cattle and wealth, the riches and cattle and wealth sometimes would be, would be described as that king's glory. Like those things pointed to the king's weightiness and realness and power. 
Um, as a verb, it, it's, it's like the action of pointing to that something or someone greater. When you're glorifying or giving glory to, it's pointing to that somebody or something greater uh, in, the, in the Bible. So when it comes to God and this word glory, that can be a verb and it could be a noun. When it's glorifying God, when we see that in the Bible or giving glory to God, what we have to think to is that thing is pointing to God in some way. It's showing God in some way. That's kind of what glorifying means. Now, when you think of glory as a characteristic of God, I think the best way to think through it is this blinding, undeniable weightiness and beauty to God that emanates from his character. Okay, so if you, I'm trying to use language that the Bible itself uses to describe the glory of God. It's this blinding, undeniable, realness, weightiness, and beauty to God himself that emanates from who he is. God is glorious. So in these first five verses, we see Jesus is talking about glory a lot. He's praying for glory a lot. Like Jesus first, he starts off saying, hey, God, would you bring more glory through me, is what Jesus says. Through the Son, would you bring more glory through me and to the Father and to the Son? By, I think Jesus is saying, as he goes to the cross. He's basically saying, God, let the cross bring glory to God and glory to the Son. Jesus also uh, says, he notes in the prayer, he says, listen, my whole life has been one where I am doing the works that you prepared for me, and that glorifies you. That gives you glory, God. And then Jesus in verse 5, he says, there's this glory that him and the Father shared before Jesus was sent into the world, which is a a glimpse at the, the Trinity, and he's saying, man, I want that glory again. I want to be in that glory again. I want to be in that weightiness I want to be in the midst of that beauty. And so Jesus prays for glory in all sorts of ways in this prayer, which I think all points to the observation that I made, is that a characteristic and a goal of Jesus' life was to give God glory. He wants to give God glory in all that he does. And that's why he begins to pray that what he's about to do, that him going to the cross would glorify God and give God glory and give himself glory. Which sounds a little bit like megalomania, right? We know the Father and the Son are one, and yet throughout the Bible, God is asking for glory and telling us and commanding to give glory. And Jesus right here is saying, let glory come to me, which sounds like megalomania, but it's not. It's not megalomania because God's glory is the true grain of the universe. God's glory is what's right and true about the universe. It's not megalomania. It's not a God who needs our praise. It's a God who knows he's made us to experience his glory and to reflect his glory. And so it's not megalomania. I I think it's probably something closer to like when you're on a plane and someone starts having a heart attack and somebody says, hey, is there a doctor on a plane to help with this person? And you ask that doctor to come over and help this person having a heart attack. I think God's glory is more akin to that, and God asking for glory is more akin to that. And so uh, 
God in his glory is what each and every human was made for and each and every human was made to reflect. And it's what this broken, hurting, sinful world needs. It needs God's glory. It needs his weightiness. It needs his beauty. It needs his reality. And Jesus knew that one of the biggest ways he was going to show that glory was through the cross. And I would argue the resurrection as well. And so he begins to pray for exactly that to happen, that through the cross, God would be glorified. So here's, here's my first challenging uh, question. Aim to make us more mature disciples. Aim to mature our walk, to make us more like Christ, right? We are disciples, meaning that we are disciples of Jesus, meaning we are trying to live life like Jesus would if he was wearing our clothes, if he was in our shoes, Okay, and so here's my first challenging question is this. Is giving God glory a goal and a characteristic of your life? Is giving God glory a goal and a characteristic of your life? And I, I don't just mean theoretically. Okay, a lot of us go, sure, that's what I'm trying to do. Theoretically. I don't mean theoretically. I mean literally. Is giving God glory a goal and a characteristic of your life? Think about school. At some point, some of you will go to school and you say, I'm going to get this degree, and you're going to go, and you're going to do it. Some of you have already been through school, and you're going, hey, I've already been through school, and at that point, when I was 18 or whatever, I said, I'm going to get an engineering degree or whatever kind of degree, and you went and you did it. Is giving God glory a goal in that way for you? Not just something theoretical, not just something like, sure, that's what I want to do. But do you, in your life, go, how can I give God more glory? How can I point to his beauty? How can I show the world who he is? And I, I just wonder if it's something that is a goal for us, is a characteristic for us. It was for Jesus. Our God, our Lord, our teacher. And so it should be a goal of ours. That we would seek to give God glory. Jesus dying on the cross gave God glory, but so did his life. Jesus said, hey, my life, my very life glorifies God and points to God. The Apostle Paul, he even talks about how Christians uh, ate over debatable matters. How they disagreed over debatable matters, really. He said, even that, even how we do that can give God glory. And so is a goal of your life to give God glory with every part of your life, not just singing? Because I think we think of giving God glory through this lens of like, well, I'll just sing. I'll just sing, and that's what, now it does give God glory. I think singing is important. Or we think of giving God glory as, well, I'll, I'll just evangelize. I'll just tell it. Now, that is giving God glory. But what the Bible points to is that the totality of our life, how we eat with one another, how we disagree with one another, even that can give God glory. Is that a goal and a characteristic of your life? Do you spend time thinking, how can I point to the beauty of God and the reality of God more with all of my actions? Do you think, how can my work point to God? How can the way I work point to God? 
How can the way I eat point to God? How can the way I have fun point to God? How can the way I parent point my kids to God? Listen, I think giving God glory, sometimes it's just going to happen because we were made to bear his image. We were made to give God glory. And even in all our brokenness and sinfulness, we still give God glory in all sorts of ways. So sometimes it's just going to happen. But what we see in this prayer is it seems like Jesus was saying, hey, how can I actively engage in glorifying God and God, would you do that through me? This is what Jesus was saying. Jesus wanted the totality of his life to point to God and to glorify God. Glorifying God is more than just singing. It's more than just evangelizing, although it's those things too. This is why I think non-Christian music glorifies God sometimes. Uh-oh, all right? I think non-Christian music, this is, this is what was hard for me. My dad told me my whole life growing up, he go, that's bad, it's the devil, you're going to die. Like, if you listen to that stuff... And the kids all around me growing up, they were burning their non-Christian CDs. And I, w- I was a good boy. I, I mostly listened to uh, uh, Christian music. I listened. But then one day I found a Beatles record. This is a real story. And I put it on. I said, my dad's been lying to me. <laughs> this is glorious. There was like something good about it. And that's because we just automatically, when we emanate beauty and skill, especially in art or other things, it's glorious. I think this is why when you go to concerts, people look like they're at Christian concerts or Christian worship places because your body is just glorifying and glorying in God, in the image of God that you see on those people. We are called to not just do it kind of on a whim. We're, to, we're called to actually live into that and look for ways to glorify God. Right? This is a dad choosing internally to not show his anger towards his children so that they know the beauty of the fatherhood of God better. That's glorifying God. And it's singing and it's evangelizing. But we need to begin to make a goal and a characteristic of our lives ones in which we think through What does it mean for me to give God glory today in everything I do? What does it mean for me to glorify God in everything I do and maybe even begin to pray that God would do that through us? Is a goal and characteristic of your life one that gives God glory? Or is that just a junk drawer theology word that you in theory believe? Or is it something you actually do? I would argue it's something we need to actually live into. All right, second, my second observation from this prayer is this. Jesus says something really amazing here. He says, knowing God is eternal life. Did you, did you catch that? I think it's verse 3. Knowing God is eternal life. In this prayer where Jesus prays, he wants people to know the one true God and Jesus, the Son, He prays that the people would know the one true God and Jesus the Son. And he says, because knowing God is where eternal life is found. Isn't that interesting? Look look at me, friends. I am never 
just trying to get you to heaven, okay? I don't know the directions, all right? I don't know how to get there. I'm not, my goal as your pastor is not to just try to get you to heaven. My goal is not to say, hey, let's just be good boys and good girls, and maybe we'll be good enough to get there one day. That is not my goal. My goal is to introduce you to God himself. My goal is to help you know God, to actually know him, to relate to him. Half the time, I don't even know how it's possible, but I know it's possible because of the gospel. The good news that God has arrived, the king of all has arrived, and he's shown us his power in his life and his death and his resurrection. Because of all that being true, we can know God. And Jesus says, knowing God is where eternal life is found. That's not what I grew up hearing. I didn't grow up hearing, hey, you want life? You want to find life? Know God. Figure out how to know God. Try to know God. I didn't hear that. I heard all kinds of other stuff that is only for my counselor. But what Jesus says about eternal life is knowing God is eternal life. Don't gloss over that. If you want life, if you want flourishing, if you want eternal life, you can only find it in knowing God. Not in striving, not in working hard. You can only find it in knowing God. That's where eternal life is found. One of the centering points of our faith should be on trying to get to know God more and more. The more you tap into knowing God right now, the more you tap into eternal life right now. So here's my challenging question with this observation about knowing God being eternal life. Here's the challenging question. Do you have a life centered on knowing God? Do you have a life centered on knowing God? That, that should be one of the centers. We talked uh, previously in this Gospel of John series that love needs to be one of the centers, but so does knowing God. Do you have a life centered on knowing God? Because if you don't, what are we doing here? What are we doing? Jesus, who knows all, our great rabbi and teacher and Lord and king, he prays this prayer in front of us, and he says, do you, you want to know where eternal life is? You want to know how you can get out of this whole problem of death? By knowing God. And so if we're here, and our lives aren't ones centered around knowing God, I, I just wondered if they're centered around death. Because knowing God is where we find eternal life. A disciple of Jesus knows God, and that's where we find life. I think a ton of problems with modern American Christianity is it's a faith not rooted in actually knowing God. In actually knowing him. The way you know your mom. The way, the way you know your best friend. The way you know your close friends. I don't think our faith is often centered around actually knowing God. But the more I read the New Testament, the more I feel like what God is inviting us into is a knowing of him, a union with him, a relationship with him. 
I think a lot of times we just, we know God like we know celebrities. Not very intimately, not truly, uh, and not with any sort of real depth. We just kind of know a lot of facts about them. A lot of random things TMZ showed us. God is inviting us into something more than that. Into actually knowing him intimately. If one of the centering parts of your life is not on knowing God, make it so. If, if you're like, I don't know, this seems daunting, I don't know how to do that, set up a meeting with me. I would love to sit with you and just talk through, okay, let's go through this. Let's talk about what it means to know God. How do we get to know God more in our brokenness and in our sinfulness? How can we even get to know God more? Now listen, I, I'm not saying knowing God is easy. I'm not up here saying like, just guys, turn on the knowing God switch. Like, there we are, right? I don't think it's, I don't think it's that easy. I think knowing God can be really hard for a variety of reasons. But in, in spite of all that, I still think knowing God, knowing Jesus, is where eternal life is found. So even though it might be a difficult path to walk, one that uh, develops an intimacy with the God of the universe, I still think that's what we're called to. If we want to be mature disciples, I think knowing God is eternal life. I think knowing God is where we find life. Life is found in knowing God. And so, is a big part of your life centered around knowing God? If it isn't, it should be. Okay, my third observation is this. Third observation, Jesus yearns to be back in the presence of the Father. Jesus yearns to be back in the presence of the Father. You saw that in verse 5, right? Where he's saying, I want to be back in that place where we shared glory together before I came into this world. It's really, it's really interesting to me that Jesus says that. It's interesting to me because I think it shows some really big things about Jesus. I think one of the things it shows, it means that when Jesus came into this world and he took on flesh and this life that he lived, when he did that, that was a sacrifice for him. Just coming to earth and taking on flesh was a sacrifice for him. The way he loves us and cares for us and saves us, it was a sacrifice, the whole thing. Because right here in John 17, Jesus is praying, please, can I go back? Can I go back to where we shared glory together before all of this? Jesus yearns to be in the presence of his Father because living this out, loving us well, was a sacrifice was painful probably in a lot of ways. Another big thing it shows about Jesus, it means that he and the Father have this really deep sort of intimacy. This is, again, some of the unfolding of the mystery of the Trinity. There is a deep intimacy be between the Father and the Son that's really beautiful here. Deep love is happening here. Another big thing, it means that when Jesus has been inviting us, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, into this oneness, and as we're going to see in the rest of John 17, as he invites us, God's people, into this oneness, that's a big deal and a beautiful thing. 
Jesus is inviting us into this oneness with himself that he yearns to be with the Father again in fullness. And he's inviting us into that. And so this observation of Jesus yearning to be back in the presence of his Father, it's, it's just, it's alluring to me. It just makes me go, what is this thing that Jesus is walking us into? What is he inviting us into? It is far bigger and more beautiful than I think I can comprehend. This is how beautiful the love of God is and binding the love of the Trinity is. Jesus' human side, in some way, hungers to be in the presence of his Father again, to share that glory. So here's my challenging question for, for us to, to, to mature us as disciples is this, is do you hunger for God like that? Do you hunger for God like Jesus does in verse 5? I don't, I don't know if we do. I know we hunger for power and money and sex and pleasure and love and intimacy and family and entertainment in all sorts of ways for accolades, for our own sort of glory. We hunger for all sorts of things, but do we hunger for God in that way? Do we hunger for God the way that Jesus hungers for his Father in verse 5? I think we're called, I think if we want to be mature disciples, we should begin to try and attempt to develop a hunger for God like Jesus has for his Father. We should begin to try to develop this hunger in us. I think it probably starts by realizing every hunger you have for like all those things that I just mentioned is actually a hunger for God in some way. I think that's probably a good starting point. But I think there's other ways to press into it. I, I think this is why fasting uh, is a spiritual discipline in the Bible. Because what fasting does is it, you deny your physical body food and your physical body feels hungry, and in those moments you can remind yourself that, you know what, the food I really need is God himself. The thing I really need is God himself. The hunger I really have is for God himself. I hate fasting personally, but I've, I've grown an appreciation of it over the last few months in particular, realizing how much these physical things we do, sometimes the spiritual disciplines are physical things God invites us into to change our inner person. And I wonder if fasting is something that could cause us to hunger for God more. Do we hunger and yearn for God the way Jesus does? If not, continue to try to figure out, okay, why not? Why don't I? Why am I not hungry for God? Why do I not yearn for God the way that Jesus does? And begin to pray and ask the Spirit to move in the midst of that and do something new and different in you. To either point out why or begin to say, Holy Spirit, just show me that you're the bread of life. Remember Jesus said that in John. He said he's the bread of life. Or ask the Spirit to show us that Jesus is living water. Or ask the Holy Spirit, please, I've heard the psalmist say that he's tasted you, God, and seen that you're good and tasted that you... You, in a way, and sensed your goodness. Holy Spirit, would you do that in me? Would you cause me to taste and see that you're good? 
And then I think, yeah, probably alongside fasting, these things can help develop our hunger for God. And to be clear, these things and fasting in particular, it doesn't get us to God. But fasting reminds us that God has gotten to us. Okay, that's what these things do. They don't get us to God, but they help remind us that God has gotten to us. That God is real, that his glory has been shown through his son. So, do you hunger for God the way that Jesus does? If you don't, I would encourage you to examine that and figure out why that is. Because the son yearned and hungered to be in the presence of his father again. Do we have that in us? I think a lot of times we don't. And I think a lot of times we hunger for all kinds of weak empty things that cannot satisfy us the way that God can. So, the start of John 17 is this beautiful, intimate prayer where we get to know Jesus, and we get to know his heart, and we're going to get to continue to know Jesus and know his heart. But this prayer in John 17, it is also going to form us. It's also going to cause us to be more mature, more mature disciples if we listen to the prayer and we see what Jesus is saying in the prayer. This prayer should leave us knowing that glory was a goal and a mission of Jesus' life. It should leave us realizing that knowing God is where true life is found. Where true life is found is knowing God. And this prayer leaves us realizing that God is the ultimate thing that all of us should be yearning and hungering for. But this prayer can also disciple us, making our lives and encouraging us to live lives that every part of our lives are lives that glorify God and seek to glorify God. And that our lives should also be centered around knowing him and that our lives should, be, uh, should have a hunger for God. That our lives should be centered around knowing God and hungering for him. This is all that Jesus prayed for in these first five verses. May his prayer be answered in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this prayer. I think it's an amazing thing, God, that we get to see this prayer that your son had for his people, for us even. So God, I, I ask that in the ways that you want us to get to know you more through this prayer, that we would get to know you more. God, thank you for this mercy that we can actually get to know you more. Help us, Lord. Some of us feel far. I bet God, even right now, as I pray that, some go, I don't know God. I can't know him. He doesn't want to know me. God, would you prove us wrong? Would you come in and reveal yourself to us? In, in light of our cynicism and doubts. God, would you also use this prayer to, to disciple us? Would you form us? Would you make us more mature disciples? God, like, legitimately use this prayer to change us. Jesus, thank you for praying this prayer for us. Holy Spirit, I ask... This prayer is answered 
through what you do in this body of believers. We need your power for this to go well. God, we love you and we're thankful for you. Amen.